You're listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, our worship leader, John, and I fried turkeys for uh, this Thanksgiving, which if you've never fried a turkey, you basically get a big external heat source and you heat up to over 375 degrees, a big vat of oil. And then you drop a turkey into it to fry it to a crisp and then pull it out. And uh, there are certain laws you must respect when you are frying said turkey. There are boundaries around this process that if you try to violate, uh, if you put too much oil in, if you let the turkey be frozen, uh, if you have water in it, then when you drop that bird in, oil comes spilling out, and when oil hits fire, it lights the whole thing ablaze, and not only do you not get a turkey, you just might burn down your entire house and everything you love, right? Uh, Now, thankfully, I've never done that because there are two ways to learn a valuable lesson. Number one is the hard way, through personal pain and experience. The other is the way of wisdom, where you watch other people. And so every Thanksgiving, I pull up YouTube and I watch people light their turkey, their burner, their uh, uh, homes on fire because of their foolishness. And I say, I'm gonna watch their outcomes. And if I don't want them, then I don't do their inputs. If I don't wanna reap what they reaped, I will not sow what they sow. David and Bathsheba. Even if you're not that familiar with scriptures, you've probably heard these names, and you know that what we're about to get into is not good. Uh, You realize that we're headed towards trouble because sex is like a fire. It's a gift from God, but it's a gift meant to be enjoyed within certain boundaries, to be bricked in in certain ways, that enjoyed within those boundaries, it can provide life and warmth and, and, and be a nourishing thing. But taken outside those boundaries, it can burn you. And it can scorch those you love. And even if you don't have a commitment to the scriptures, most everyone has a set of boundaries they believe in around sexuality. Boundaries around children, boundaries around consent, boundaries around covenant. Take this power outside of those boundaries and you can burn yourself, you can burn your loved ones, and you can burn down your career. I mean, how many people in this town have seen their reputations, their careers, and their families go up in flames because they had talent, but they didn't have character. And let me warn you now, DC, character matters more than your career. You can be wonderfully talented, but talent without character is a tragedy waiting to happen. And so we're gonna watch David, who up to this point has been a banner picture of covenant faithfulness to God, we're going to watch him make the greatest mistake of his life. And we're going to see it cost him. We're going to see David commit adultery, and we're going to see the devastation that ensues. And it's a warning in our day, according to the American Association of Marriage and Family uh, Therapy, national surveys indicate that 15% of married women, 25% of married men have extramarital Affairs, but when that is adjusted to include emotional and sexual relationships without intercourse, it jumps up 20% in each category. That's 35% of women, 55% of men. Sexuality is a gift, and I don't really have to tell you here that in America, many of us are being burned and hurt by it. So we have to figure out a way to put it back in its proper boundary. And so we're going to witness David 
make the greatest mistake of his life. And in doing so, my hope is not to shame anybody. So let's be clear on that. The goal here is to shame no one. If you hang in with me, there's gonna be some hope for us all in the end. But our goal is to look at this and say, hey, I wanna learn through the path of wisdom. I want David to pay the learning tax for me. So let's watch his life so as we see his inputs and notice its outcomes, we, by the grace of God, starting today, might go a different way. So what we're gonna look at is how to have an affair. And we didn't really get into it, but uh, to warn you, not to encourage you, come on, guys. It's the worship team over there. But anyway, we didn't get into this. Uh, We looked two weeks ago at 2 Samuel chapter 7 as the covenant of God, where God promised David, I'm going to establish your family as a dynasty of kings, and then through you will come a king who will reign on the throne forever. It's, It's one of the highest peaks in the Old Testament. God fulfilling his promise to his covenant people that I'm sending a hero who will rule you with kindness forever through the line of David. And then in the next four chapters, seven, eight, nine, ten, it is a highlight reel of David doing everything right. It's just this cascading of series of his victories that David had picked up the call on King Saul to protect the people from invading enemies. And you watch him stop the Philistines and the Moabites and the Syrians and the Edomites. It's the montage moment in the film. Victory after victory. And then you get summary statements like the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David ruled and administered justice and equity to all the people. He becomes the standard by which all other kings of Israel will be judged. You see, in 2 Samuel 9, he fulfills his vows to care for the family of the former king Saul. You see him defeat the Ammonites and and their coalition of forces. These are the salad days of David's kingdom. All is going great, and the narrator speeds through a litany of triumphant, brilliant victories. But then in 2 Samuel 11, the narrative slows down to show us this critical moment. And it says in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. David's calling as a king was to protect his people from assaults. The Ammonites would raid and then retreat to their walled city of Rabbah. And so here in the springtime, that meant the end of heavy winter rains, improved road conditions, and so military could travel and could feed off of the harvest in the Ammonite fields. And so the battle starts and it goes well. They push them back into Rabbah and besiege it, surround it to wait them out, which can take months or even years. And yet here's where the tragedy in David's life begins. And and notice the wording there because it was intentional. At the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab but David stayed at Jerusalem. At the time when King Sally forth, David sent and David sat. That's what it says. So number one, if I'm warning you against violating your own morality, and maybe not even just in adultery, but in any kind of sexual sin, number one is be a student of your environment because you watch David here and David's in the wrong place. And you see, it's interesting. The Hebrew scholar Robert Alter says this, the verb to send happens 11 times in this passage, that David will not move forward from his house in the entire passage, that he will send others to do his bidding. And then the Hebrew scholar said this, David, now a sedentary king, has removed himself from the field of action and endowed himself with a dangerous amount of leisure. Some of you, that would be a great summary of your time during COVID. 
that you found yourself at home lingering online and you found yourself with a dangerous amount of leisure and it's not been good for you. Uh, One of my mentors said it this way about this text. He says, this should be another chapter about David's great victory over the Ammonites. Instead, it's the greatest tragedy of David's life because he started out being in the wrong place. Because all sin starts small. Many of us, our violations of our personal values begin when we neglect productive activity. And here you see David do that very thing, right? Uh, I watched again in preparation for this, the press conference of Mark Sanford uh, after his affair was made public. And he said at the beginning, uh, as he confessed before his constituents the affair, uh, he said, it all began innocently enough with an email exchange with a woman who was not his wife. Because sin always starts that way. It always starts small. And here the passage will slow down at the warning signs and it warns you, where are you? David's in the wrong place. It's interesting, Sun Tzu, uh, the ancient book, uh, he wrote the ancient book, The Art of War, really talks very little about the actual combat of warfare. Where it begins though, is he constantly says, do not linger in dangerously isolated positions. If you position your army in the wrong place, then you are setting yourself up for failure. We do well to look at our lives and say sometimes our conveniences become our greatest sources of compromise. David suddenly can send others to do his bidding, but that's left him in a place where he's not pursuing productive activity. And if you don't find a productive pastime, the enemy will always present you a destructive one. And so here, David's not sinned yet, but he's placed himself in harm's way. And so it says in verse two, and it happened. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Now notice there it says late one afternoon. Uh, It was hot there. So siestas were common. You would take a siesta at noon uh, and then wake up. But notice he wakes up late in the afternoon or at eventide when the sun's going down. This means, and again, to quote Robert Alter, the recumbent king has been in bed an inordinately long time that he let that siesta linger. And uh, this is warning number two. David is not only in the wrong place, he's making a bad use of time. What do you do with your time? Where do you go? Where do you sit? What do you allow your eyes to see? David has put himself in a dangerous situation, or maybe more stark way to say it is laziness leads to lust. And many of us, if you watch yourself compromise your own morality, it's because in moments where you're tired, you're just letting anything in the world has to offer come fill your vision. Uh, James Clear, in his book, Atomic Habits, talks about choice architecture. He says, so many of our choices are not so much about what we want, but where it is. And he tells the story of a hospital that wanted people to drink more waters than Cokes. And so they put waters all around where people check out. They didn't put advertising, no marketing. They just placed them in people's field of vision and the sale of water went up 25%. That Coca-Cola will spend a lot of money to be on the end cap in your grocery store because they know if we are constantly in your field of vision, their sales go up 45%. That we tend to do what we see. What do you put before your eyes? Here, David's in the wrong place. He should have been out at war. He's back at the castle. He should have been out of bed, but he's lingering in laziness and he set himself up for failure because weariness plus opportunity leads to failure. And again, some of us in this pandemic season have found that to be a playground of depravity. Not necessarily your rooftop, uh, but maybe your screens for you have been a place of real danger. And if you don't find a productive release, the enemy will give you a destructive one. Now, I want to make a note here because it's a common misconception that she's bathing on the roof. 
No, she is not taking a bath on the roof. David's on the roof. I've actually been in this area. Uh, back then, if it was hot, you'd go out on your roof because it was cooler and you could get great views, just like DC. David's house is at the highest point. And so he's standing there. He has a commanding view of the city. And as you stand there in that commanding view, you can see into people's courtyards and you can see into their windows, right? Uh, I was awoken a few nights ago by a bright light in my bedroom. And I was like, what is that? And then I noticed it was the massive 40 plus inch screen of my neighbor who was watching TV. And I was like, hmm, what are you entertaining yourself with at 11 o'clock at night? And would it be different if you knew a pastor was watching? And so David here isn't trying to put himself in harm's way, but he has. He's not malicious, but he's careless. And he's walking on the roof and he can see into the home of Bathsheba and she's bathing, right? But here's where the problems start in verse three. And David sent and inquired about the woman. That would be my next warning. Number one is to be a student of your environment. Where do you allow yourself to linger? Number two is to be a steward of your curiosity, because many people I know that wrestle with lust, maybe have an addiction to pornography or get themselves into trouble relationally, it always starts with curiosity. I was just enjoying this email relationship. I just wanted to know a little bit more about him. I just wanted to linger with, he was telling an interesting story and I wanted to hear more about it. Or like, oh, I just wanted to click on that article. I was curious who she's dating now. I was curious what she was up to. I was curious about her swimsuit choices. You're like, why? Why do you need to know that information? Because here's the thing, curiosity is a gift from God. It's a precursor to innovation. But the enemy likes to twist it and distort it and turn it into something destructive. Your curiosity is good, but beware what you indulge it upon. Find something positive. Learn a language. Watch a documentary. Play an instrument. But if you're not actively productive in aiming your curiosity, the enemy will aim it further and further down a rabbit hole many of us don't want to go. And for many of you, if you look at the greatest sins in your life, it started there. Uh, the destruction started with a distortion of your curiosity. And so David sent and he inquires about the woman. Uh, and one says to him, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, what's interesting about that is it's, it's not common to introduce a woman by the names of her father and her husband. You don't really see that much in Hebrew. So why is that happening here? Well, it's happening here because David knew them both. Her dad was a warrior in, in uh, David's army, and David knew him. Her husband was one of David's 30, one of his elite soldiers. They've met. And so this servant is trying to respectfully, given his station, warn David. David's like, hey, who's that? Well, I think that's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. And he's trying to make it personal. Don't depersonalize her and make her an object for your lust. David, these, these are humans with names and stories and parents and families. And so he warns him. That's your next warning. Be submissive to accountability. Do you have people in your life who can speak the truth to you? And do you listen to them? David has them, but what's going to happen to David here is you watch this train start slowly, but it's going to pick up steam and watch the barriers he begins to break through as he pushes forward. He breaks through positive activity. He breaks through lingering in dangerous positions. He breaks through listening to trusted counselors. He begins to break through barrier after barrier to get himself into trouble. And here this servant warns him and David will not heed it. And then you see in verse four, look how fast the act occurs. 
So David sent messengers and he took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Notice how fast it happens. The buildup is slow, but the act is fast. That you get it in one verse. He sent, she came, he lay, she returned. That if we linger and allow sin to parlay with our hearts, it will more easily manifest in our lives. The best place to fight the battle is back then, when it's still in the realm of thought or in the realm of consideration. Don't let your temptations parlay with the heart. And be careful about what happens, because here's the thing. You get to control inputs. You don't get to control outcomes. And that's what David's going to realize here. And it's the little compromises in his life that will lead to big consequences. See, here's the interesting thing. David, this really doesn't start here. We don't have time to go back through it, but all through David's story, even as you're hearing about his great victories, you see in David's life that he marries Abigail, the woman who saved him from making a huge mistake. You really love Abigail. You're like, I like this girl. And he marries her. And then it says, and he also married someone else. And you're like, wait, what? Are you allowed to do that? And then he picks up a couple more wives. And when he becomes king, he picks up concubines. And you're like, wait a minute, what is going on here? And you're hearing about all his victories, but they keep sprinkling in his accruing of women. You go, is this right? But if you go back and read the law of God in Deuteronomy written by Moses generations before, it says, warn your kings, do not multiply wives because your heart will be led astray. You see that our appetites grow. That's the mistake of lust for many of us. Oh, I just want to satiate it here. No, it doesn't become satisfied. It just becomes more hungry. And this is David who had great character and great success. Can you be a success politically and a failure morally? Yes. Class. Yes. And you watch David here. He's given space for this. No, this is my little thing. This is what I do. This is my release. This is where I go. This is my oasis. But it doesn't become smaller and satiated. It grows bigger and it consumes even what you love. And David will put these inputs in, but he doesn't get to determine outcomes. But it's these little decisions along the way that lead to big consequences later. I, like many of you, gained 10 pounds over COVID. And I was like, how did this happen? And as I evaluated it, it wasn't because I'm like, oh, it's that wedding cake I eat every night. That's not how it works. What I realized is I was just eating all my children's snacks all throughout the day. And it was the little accruing of goldfish throughout the day <laughs> that turned into 10 pounds. And I realized, wow, little decisions, little compromises lead to big consequences. And it's the same with the way you entertain yourself, particularly with the way you indulge sexuality in the culture today, which is ubiquitous, by the way. And so David here has done that. He has allowed himself to linger in dangerous places and make little compromises until finally it folds into what becomes here what I think is so tragic because not only do the verbs tumble downhill, sin gains momentum as it parlays with the heart. Notice the complete lack of emotional words. There's no love. There's no care. There's no concern. Devotionally, I've made it into Song of Solomon in my devotional time, which is all about the sweetness with which the beloved loves his bride. You get none of that here. It's just using. He doesn't even use her name. Did you notice in the text she becomes the woman? You don't hear her name again till later when God intervenes. And so this depersonalizing of sexuality is so far from God's intent. Parenthetical statement, why does it mention her purifying herself? It's a timestamp. Uh, back then, women would go through a moment of ritual 
purity after their menstrual cycle was done. It's, it's a timestamp to show you she was at the place where they understood peak ovulation was happening, and it's to show you her husband's not the daddy, right? That's the point. Now, it's at this point that a lot of people talk about her motivations. What was going on with Bathsheba? That name sounds so uh, provocative. Like, did she seduce him? Was she sort of bathing out front? And uh, wait a minute, she came to him? Was she a willing participant? Well, I want you to notice two factors. Number one, the power dynamics. He's the king and he sent for you. He doesn't say why. When the king says, come, you come. And number two, the writer purposely tells you nothing about her motives because he wants you to keep laser focused on David's. It's not that Bathsheba's motives don't matter, and it's not that the motives of women don't matter. There are strong women in the passage, Abigail, who I mentioned earlier. Not all women are victims, but this one is, that he keeps you focused on David. David will victimize Bathsheba and Uriah and many others before we're done. And so it focuses you on the activities of David. He has wronged her, and she responds with, I am pregnant, because our inputs have outcomes. Causes lead to effects. Old Testament says it. Can you scoop fire into your lap and not be burned? No, you can't. I remember reading years ago about these young men that had seen a video of a girl. She had gotten drunk at a party and passed out, and she was molested at this party, sexually taken advantage of, and someone took a video of it, and they would post it online. And these guys kept posting it, kept posting it, kept talking about it, kept commenting on it all throughout their school until finally this girl, in so much emotional distress, took her own life. And some of these boys that had pushed this whole thing were put on trial. And one of the boys, when he was on trial, began to cry. And as he cried, he said, I didn't mean for this to happen. And as he said that, I remember watching it and thinking, I believe you, but that doesn't make you innocent. It makes you a fool. Because biblically in the Old Testament, the fool separates income inputs from outcomes. And say, no, I don't think you wanted her to take her life, but you were doing things that were promoting this outcome. And here David wanted to innocently get away with it, send her home, it was one night of passion, it's over. But little inputs lead to outcomes. You control the inputs, you don't get to control the outcomes. And here she writes and tells David, I'm pregnant. David has to respond. So in verse six, so David sent word to Joab, the commander of his army, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David and Uriah came to him and David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. It's interesting, how are you doing? In Hebrew is the word shalom. It means peace, human flourishing. Tell me about the shalom of the people, the shalom of Joab, the shalom of the war. David's asking about shalom while he's ripping it apart. And this would have struck you as odd. Uriah is one of the 30s, one of the most elite troops. So you're calling me back home and just like, hey, I just want to know how Joab's doing. Like, dude, messengers do that. Not special forces. But then David says in verse eight, go down to your house, wash your feet. And it's here where we find David's plan. Wash your feet, you know, it's a dusty place, you wear sandals. It means go get cleaned up and go home. That's a gracious domestic hospitality when you come to your house, often performed by the wife. And implicit in this is marital intimacy. It's saying, go home. Relax, unwind, wash your feet. And it says, and Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. That present would have been food from his table and wine. So if bathe your feet didn't get it for him, the food and wine did. Shower, supper, sex. That's how it rolls. And you see David's plan here. I know what I need to do. I gotta get Uriah back here, get him to sleep with his wife. She has a kid. We're good. Okay, so the kid looks a little like the king. Nobody gets hurt. And David wants to control the outcomes. 
success. But then in verse nine, it says, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Here's the shocking twist. It should have said, and Uriah slept with his wife, according to David. But it says, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. Wait a minute. What are you doing? And David's starting to realize you get to choose inputs. You don't get to control outcomes. Conviction will come even when you don't want it to. Uriah doesn't go home. Now, why doesn't he go home? We don't have time to read it all, but ritual purity back then when you'd go to war meant you abstained from sexual contact. It was a way to say, I'm consecrated to the Lord for this particular moment, and it's a way of showing camaraderie to my brothers who are also facing deprivation. So Uriah won't do it. And let me tell you, that's gonna bother David because when you're in sin, there's nothing more annoying and unnerving than the integrity of others. And so here in verse 10, when they told David, Uriah didn't go to your house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go to your house? Uh, it's a little bit of attack on Uriah's virility. What's wrong with you, man? And so here Uriah has to explain to David ritual purity, which David knows and David claimed to follow in an earlier passage in 1 Samuel. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. My Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? He's explicit about what David was trying to make implicit. As you live and as my soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Which people wonder at that point, did Uriah really know? Did he say, this whole thing's suspect and kind of slipped at the door of his house? Like, we're gonna see what's going on here. Or is he completely duped and a victim of this thing? Again, it doesn't matter. We're not focused on his actions right now. All you see here is his commitment to faithfulness to the Lord. And it's meant to be a contrast to the king. It's interesting, Uriah is called the Hittite. That means he was foreign born. Here, the foreigner is a more true follower of Yahweh than the king of Yahweh's people. David has a decision at this moment. Do I confess? Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today and tomorrow. I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and he drank. So he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go to his house. David goes, nah, I'll just get him drunk. I'll do some chemical inducements to loosen up his moral commitments. The problem is it doesn't work, but this is how it happens. When sin is concealed, sin compounds. Now it's not just the act, now I have to lie about the act. And many of you have found yourself way down a road you never meant to go down. You have to trace it back and to see. Don't be deceived, right? When we are lured and enticed by our own lust, lust when it's conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. David is walking further and further down a path away from life. And yet Uriah maintains his integrity. So David's out of options. He won't bend even under chemical inducement. So now what do I do? Do I confess and repent? Or do I continue to conceal and commit more sin? Because our choices have consequences. There's no escape from that. Someone has to suffer for the pain David caused. And David decides to make it Uriah. And he says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, send Uriah to the front for the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he might be struck down and die. He sends Uriah with his own death warrant, sealed with the seal of the king. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there was the most valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Uh, it, it's interesting. Joab realizes David's command is sloppy. We're gonna all move forward and then everyone back away and let Uriah killed? No, other people are gonna to have to die too. Our sins don't stay locked up. 
the consequences compound. Many people, when they commit sexual sins, say, hey, it's just me, it's just my life, it's just what I'm doing, it's never just you. It's interesting, someone I follow online just decided uh, as a test to become a 13-year-old girl on Instagram. And that's all the data points he gave to Instagram. I'm 13 and I'm a girl. And the deluge of suggested sites to follow were all heavily sexual sent to him. That's not coming out of the heart of a 13-year-old girl. That's coming out of the heart of the generation before. Uh, Our sins tend to be visited on our children. And here you see many soldiers in David's army dies because of his sin. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot you from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of somebody? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? It's, it's suicidal to go near a wall in a besieging. Besieging, you're cutting off supply lines so they starve to death inside. There's no reason to go to the wall. That just gives them a chance to kill you. Bad military strategy. And so Joab says to the messenger, when David gets mad about the bad strategy, remind him that Uriah, your servant, is also dead. And when David said that to the messenger, verse 25, David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, don't let this matter displease you. The sword devours one and then the other. Strengthen your attack, the city, and overthrow it and encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. That was common back then when a woman became widowed for another man to offer to be a redeemer that would take care of her. David offers himself for his fallen Uriah. How noble to be the father of this child. And so realize, David's the problems are solved. The end, might makes right. The powerful get to do whatever the heck they want. Kings make the rules. Rules don't make the king and the powerful get to rule. Is that the story? That's what David thinks. And yet this chapter ends with, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's interesting, he told Josiah, don't let this displease you. Literally, don't let this be evil in your eyes. And you think that's done. But then the Lord says, no, this is evil in my eyes. I'm not okay with this. The name Uriah means the Lord is light. Uh, Johnny Cash said it, you may run on for a long time, run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. And here God is coming for David. And in 2 Samuel 12, it says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. David's been sending, sending, sending. Now the Lord sends Nathan. And he came to him and he tells this story. There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and he, with his children. He used to eat of the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him, which is a bit much for a sheep. But he's laying it on thick. Notice he uses the words eat and drink and lie. The same things David was trying to get Uriah to do. Uh, and he called the sheep a daughter. That's bat and lay in his arms. That's Shabbat. It sounds like Bathsheba. So he had him in his arms. But when a traveler came to the rich man, he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who would come for him. He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who came to him. Not so subtle. Guy had plenty of sheep. Takes that guy's one sheep that was in his lap or in his arms, in his bosom, pulled it out of his lap and sacrificed it. And David interrupts the story at that point because he's furious. In verse five, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He gives his emotional response. 
He deserves death. But then he gives his official judicial decree. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. And now Nathan presses home the point. Nathan said to David in verse seven, you are that man. I remember when I was in college, uh, some guys were making jokes about wanting to date my little sister that was coming to college that next year. And I didn't think their jokes were funny because I knew these guys and I did not trust them. And I didn't trust the way they treated women. And so they were all laughing about, I'm gonna date your sister, I'm coming after your sister. And I was like, no, you won't. And I wasn't trying to play macho. I was just literally saying like, no, like I'll kill you. Like I literally, you most of all, you know? And uh, a guy just threw off as a throwaway line as we left, Ben, will anyone be good enough for your sister? And what's crazy is they all left the lunchroom and I sat there for a long time. And I was like, yes. Like I wanted to be married. Some guy would be good enough. And I started thinking about who would be good enough. And I, and I started to make a list of attributes that he would care about her heart, not just want to use her body that he would value the gifts God gave her and use his resources to help advance those. And I started to think about all these things I would want him to do. And then the Lord did what Nathan did to David. He just hid the sword and said, Ben, do you treat women that way? And I started crying in the lunchroom because I realized I didn't. And here David is confronted by the Lord. And he says, David, you're that man. Confess or expose your sin. That's the choice, biblically. You confess, you forsake, and find mercy. But don't think you can belong to the Lord and hide your sin. You can bring it forward and confess it and find mercy. Or in love, he will expose you. This is part of God's grace. It's his grace that taught my heart to fear. And God sends Nathan, and God might be sending you to some friends to have some hard conversations, and you just might save their life. And here Nathan comes to him and gives him the background Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you, king over Israel. I gave you your position. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you protection. I gave you your master's house. I give you possessions and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the symbols of prestige. You had control over his family. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. I gave you power. And if that was too little, I would have given you more. Corruption begins where contentment ends. Fight corruption with contentment. One of your greatest battles against temptation is gratitude because resentment will push you into the arms of temptation. And for many of us, it's when we get bitter and upset that the devil opens a door to an oasis that will be destructive. Beware of entitlement. And here David had become entitled, and yet it's godliness with contentment that's great gain. And so then he catalogs David's offenses. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do evil in his sight? God puts himself on the side of the oppressed. No, David, I stand with the Bathshebas and Uriahs of the world. And I'm on their side and you despised my word. And later you'll say, you despised me by hurting them because I love people and you used a person. And what you did was evil in my sight. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Notice God shrinks there and eliminates excuses. I didn't kill him, the Ammonites did. No, you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. I I didn't abuse that person. I just watched some of these videos online. Hey man, shrink it. You're a part of a system that's destructive. Let that bother you, let it terrify you so you'll make a different decision, right? And so he says, you used your power to exploit and he puts it in front of his face. And then he issues a verdict in verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. God had given him a house. David had brought sin into the house. 
brought a sword into that house. And God said, it's a double-edged sword. Now it's swinging back to you. And here's the terrifying thing. David, in his judicial pronouncement, said it will be a fourfold judgment on the man who took that sheep. And we will watch play out in David's life, a fourfold judgment. You will watch four of his children die because of his sin. The child right now in Bathsheba's belly will pass away. His son Amnon uh, will rape his half-sister Tamar and be killed by one of his brothers in revenge. His son Absalom will usurp him on the throne and Absalom will be killed by Joab, his commander, that he brought into this mess. And then his son Adonijah will attempt to grab the throne and be killed by another one of his brothers. The innocent will die. He'll have a sexually perverse son. He'll have a murderous son and a power-hungry son. The sins of the father are reproduced in the children. We have to fight it while it's small because it costs too much later. And again, I'm not trying to shame anybody. There's grace coming, I promise. But I'm telling you, we realize the enemy wants us to say, hey, this sin's small. It doesn't have any impact. It doesn't matter. You do whatever. You do you. Oh, whatever. He's being regressive. But you know where it goes. And if you don't want to go there, don't start here. If you don't like those outcomes, beware of your inputs, right? Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He'll lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Absalom will do that. He'll sleep with David's wives on the rooftop where David was looking at Bathsheba. What you did in the dark, David, will be brought into the light. Many of us know that, right? Uh, Ashley Madison, the adultery website, all their data was published online. You don't get to hide 45 million subscribers. It will be brought into the light. And so what do you do when it does? And some of you have been asking that question. Well, this was all great. I would have been great to know this a couple years ago. What do you do now? Verse 13, David says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, some people are really bothered by that. That's it. I sinned. Okay, you're good. And some of us get mad at the sense of injustice about that, which you've got to pause for that in a minute. Most people, their criticism of God in the Old Testament is that he's too judgmental. But for many of us, when you read this, you want him to be more judgmental, right? You're mad at a God for being too just and now being unjust. David says, I sinned and God passes over it. How dare he? Why would you do that? Well, God will not remove from David his promises, but there will be penalties in David's life. You watch repeated, and we won't have time to read it, but the word death will show up many more times in this passage. Death is coming to David's house. There are consequences he can't avoid. And yet God is quick to show mercy. Some of us are bothered by that mercy when you see it in someone's life like this until the moment you need it. We hate mercy like this until we find ourselves on the side of David and realize all of us like his sheep have gone astray. Who here is without sin? Who here is without sexual sin of some kind? Who here has not been bothered by this sermon at all? And so we listen to the story of David and it's terrifying. And so this passage seems a little too easy, but it also seems like a little bit of hope, like maybe that'll count for me. What's interesting, that verb there, the Lord has passed over your sin, doesn't mean that God thought it was no big deal. And David saying, I am sinned, is not just that he just threw up his hands like, I didn't sin. What you see in David there is you see no justifying, you see no excusing, you just see naked admission. I sinned. Not, well, because I, well, if you didn't, well, my friends were, he doesn't do any of that. He says, I did it. And he accepts what's coming. And he says, your sin is being passed over. 
That doesn't mean it's being put away or didn't matter. In the Passover in the Old Testament, the sin of God's people wasn't put away. It was put on somebody else. That, that the verb there is transfer. That all decisions have consequences. And David deserves punishment. But the son of David, Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, became sin for us. Paul wrestles with this passage in Romans. He said, God left all these sins unpunished. How can he be just? He said, because all that debt fell into Jesus' ledger so that God could be just and the justifier. So God can say there will be justice. And if you've been abused, you've been hurt, there will be justice. No one gets away with anything. Every sin will be paid for, either in eternity in hell or on that cross. And yet the beauty for all of us is we're all sinners and we need that cross. And so God provided it. He sent a son where David failed. And notice here at the beginning of his kingdom, we already see the fall of it because there's no human heroes. This is the best guy we got. And he's murdering people. We need a savior who's not like us. And we got one. The son of David, the son of God, Jesus Christ transferring that sin unto himself. It's fascinating. We don't have time to get to it all. I'm sorry this took so long. It was so depressing. But you know, it's the Bible. It's not me. I've got problems with it. It says, after all that, David comforted his wife Bathsheba in verse 24. And he lay with her and she bore a son and they called his name Solomon. The word Solomon is built off the word peace. Can there be peace after your devastating sin in your life? Yes, there can. And just in case you might think, well, that's wishful thinking on David and Bathsheba's part. It says in the rest of that verse, and the Lord loved him. God looks at little Solomon and he loves him. He's gonna make him king. God's gonna put his grace on him. So much so that the Nathan who had brought condemnation says in the next verse, and he sent a message by Nathan the prophet and he called his name Jedidiah. You know what Jedidiah means? It means cherished by Yahweh. They said, we're gonna name him peace, that the anger of God's no longer coming. And God's like, right, yeah, call him peace. But let me take a step further and call him loved, beloved, Yedidiah. That's your name, beloved of God. And I don't think it's an accident in the New Testament that all of us who like sheep have gone astray, the Bible over and over again calls those who've come to know the sacrifice of the son of David, Jesus, were called beloved. You're loved. Your sin has been paid for. Your shame has been buried. You don't have to carry it anymore. He doesn't want you to. He paid for it. He passed over it. So we can grieve our sin, but we can pick our head up and rise up and move past it. We can be warned by passages like this to not repeat mistakes that will cost us. And yet your consequences in your life, they're not doomed. You are not doomed to failure. David isn't, and you aren't either. The church I went to as a kid, it was maybe 50 people in the church. And it was a tiny little church. And I remember the daughters of one of our elders just didn't like all the rules of the church, was rebellious and, and ran off and started making some wild decisions and, and got pregnant. 
And all this shame came into her life and she didn't want to show up to the church. And, and some people, when they make a mistake or the church is the last place they want to be. But I remember we had this pastor who was such a good pastor and he didn't recoil from her. He moved towards her family. And in the right moment, a couple months into it, he brought her on stage. Again, not in front of hundreds. It was like 50 of us, right? By stage, I mean like there. And he sat down with her and talked with her about her story. And I'll never forget, he stood up and he put his arm around her and he said, church, we love her. And Jesus loves her. And we're gonna love this child. And we're gonna raise this child. And this is one of our children. And we're gonna care for him. And he just took all the stigma and shame of failure away because that's what the church is meant to be. We all walk in sinners, all of us. And when you realize that and go, but there's grace for all of us, there's grace even for the Davids, then there's grace for you. You don't have to act like you're perfect. We don't want you to. It's weird if you do, because we know you're not. And yet there's grace for us and there's peace for you. You can walk out of here with peace today and not just peace with a new name, Yadida, loved by God. That's who you are. That's who your kid is. That's where your future's going. If you come to embrace the sacrifice of the son, Jesus Christ, that's our hope for you. So don't leave here with any shame you're meant, you think you're meant to carry. Don't leave here with a shadow of condemnation over you. He bore all that. He buried all that. He paid for all that. You don't have to carry it. There is peace today and there is love in Jesus' name. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.